Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, I'll have a conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He is the author of No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. That's coming up midway through this first hour. And then in the second hour, in addition to covering election results, as much as we know at this point, uh, we'll talk with Nicole Hunt. Uh, She is an attorney, a life issues analyst for Focus on the Family. We'll talk about the devastating losses for pro-lifers in this election cycle. And finally, we'll share some musings of a local pastor, Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church. Politics have become too important to me if, and then he offers some, some of the things that we may drift away into during this political season and some scripture to help us um, find our way back. So that's coming up on today's program. Well, the Oregonian named Democrat Tina Kotek, the projected winner over Republican challenger Christine Drazen, on Wednesday morning, the Democrat Party's four-decade hold on the governorship here in Oregon will continue after the Oregonian named Tina Kotek the projected winner this morning. As of um, that time, Kotek held a lead of of nearly 30,000 votes over Republican challenger Christine Drazen. Drazen's campaign released a statement shortly after noon that read, We are grateful to the many thousands of Oregonians who made their voices heard in this historic election. We continue to monitor returns with the expectation that this race will tighten. The campaign said it hopes to release an additional statement later in the day if she hasn't already done so. Well, Kotek, the longest-serving Oregon House Speaker, faced a significant challenge from Drazen, a former leader of the Republican minority in the House. For weeks leading up to the election, polls showed the two within percentage points of each other. The race was too close to call on election night, with both receiving around 45 percent of the vote and Kotek holding a narrow lead Tuesday night. A new batch of uh, vote results came in on Wednesday, pushing Kotek's average um, out and an advantage uh, to reach 46.2 percent. Christine Drazen at 44.3 percent. Betsy Johnson, 8.8 percent. Of the vote. Well, in other election news on state and local ballot measures, and there were quite a few of them, Measure 111 amended the Constitution, saying the state would have to ensure affordable health care access balanced against requirements to fund schools and other essential services. Um, that was, um, at least in last uh, count, 50 percent um, at no, 49 percent at yes, and I'm not sure that's actually been called. Measure 112 amends the Constitution. It removes language allowing slavery and involuntary servitude as punishment for crime. That passed with 54.3% of the vote. Measure 113 amending the Constitution. Legislators with 10 unexcused absences from floor sessions would be disqualified from holding next term of office. That succeeded with 67, almost 68% of the vote. Measure 114, which was the more controversial Measures on the Oregon ballot required permits to require uh, firearms. Police would have to maintain a permit firearm database criminally uh, prohibits certain ammunition magazines in the state of Oregon. It barely squeaked by if this is the final result. Fifty point three percent to forty nine point six percent in favor of Measure 114, the strictest gun measure in the country. Twenty six two three zero, the Multnomah County 
uh, charter amendment that replaced gender binary uh, pronouns with gender neutral terms. That passed. Of course, it's Multnomah County. It would with 61 percent of the vote. Uh, 33% voting, or rather 38% voting no. 26-231, which also amended the Multnomah County Charter, uh, voting uh, rights to be extended to um, uh, those um, uh, who are not uh, illegal. That did not pass, with 56% of the vote opposing that measure. 26-232, the Multnomah County Charter Amendment, that would allow officials, county officials, elected using ranked choice voting in uh, runoff elections, um, and that passed by 66.5%. In other words, um, well, I won't go into the detail. You probably studied it uh, on your own. But this will change the way elections are tallied in the state of Oregon. And there are a couple of states that are currently using that system. 26224, Portland Community College bonds to construct job training. That passed. The metro measure um, that would renew local uh, option levy that passed, as did the uh, city of Portland, amending the charter, changing the Portland's government structure and process for electing city officials that passed in the city of Portland as well. As mentioned, Oregon voters passed one of the country's strictest gun control measures, a long sought goal of the grassroots faith based campaign. Partial returns tallied uh, this morning showed 114 leading 51% to 49%. I think that has since increased. Most of the votes left to be tallied were in Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas counties, all favoring or heavily favoring that measure. The measure would require Oregonians to obtain a permit to buy a gun after completing a firearm safety course and would ban the sale or transfer of magazines that hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition. It will also close the so-called Charleston loophole by requiring state police to complete full background checks on buyers with permits before or any gun sale or transfer. And under federal law now, firearms dealers can sell guns without a completed background check if the check takes longer than three business days. Um, the measure did um, did pass. The highest support for the measure, not surprisingly, was in Multnomah County with 75% to 25% in favor. The measure led in Washington County, 62% with 38% opposed. Clackamas County with 52 percent in favor, 48 percent opposed. The measure led in um, Lane County, 54 percent to 46 percent. Deschutes, uh, 51 to 50 percent, respectively. We're going to take a break here in just a few moments, but uh, we also want to take a look at the election results for the congressional races. And of course, we had a new uh, congressional district in the state of Oregon. Uh, Susan Bonamici won in District um, uh, the first congressional district in the second congressional district, Cliff Bentz, uh held that uh, that race. Uh, Earl Blumenauer retained his position in his uh, district in the fourth congressional district. Um, Val Hoyle and Alex Scarla- Scarlatos uh, were very close. Uh, I'm not sure they've called that one yet, but Val, uh, Val Hoyle seems to be ahead uh, the democrat working families as opposed to the republican and i'll wait for some final numbers on that for the fifth congressional district um Lori chavez Dereemer seems to be ahead with 51.72 percent of the vote and uh, in the sixth congressional district a very close race with uh, andrea salinas and mike erickson salinas being the democrat erickson the republican uh, 49, 47 percent respectively. So that's very close and not sure they have called that one just yet. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break and we'll continue to take a look at the election and a conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer coming up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer, author of No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. Well, according to Oregon Right to Life, the day after election, and there's a lot of uncertainty. Many of the races we're watching are still too close to call. The governor's race is incredibly close, although it has since been called. Um, the uh, pro-life victories in the, the state of Oregon, we'll talk a bit about that uh, later in the program in Oregon and around the country with Nicole Hunt an attorney and life issues analyst for Focus on the Family. There were some devastating losses for pro-lifers in this election, but again, we'll refer to those a bit later in the program. Well, Republicans eliminated Democrats' three-fifths supermajority in the Oregon Senate by flipping at least one net seat in Tuesday's election, meaning Democrats will no longer be able to strong-arm votes on new taxes through on straight party-line votes. It seems to me that's healthy for the state of Oregon. The precise divide between the parties remains uncertain. Clackamas County's Senate District 20, a contest between Democrat Mark Meat and incumbent Republican Bill Kenimer, remains too close to call. But it's clear that Republicans who now hold 11 seats in the chamber will uh, up their number to at least 12 come January. With a 13th seat uh, held by independent Brian Boquist of Dallas, Democrats are shut out from holding the 18 seats necessary for a three-fifths supermajority. Republicans picked up a seat on Oregon's North Coast, where Representative Suzanne Weber from uh, Tillamook won the contest Tuesday to replace Democratic Senator Betsy Johnson, who stepped down to run for governor. Another Republican House member also Uh, Looking to move up to the Senate, Cedric Hayden of rural Lane County uh, handily beat his opponent in the race to replace retiring Democrat Senator Lee Beyer of Springfield in a newly redrawn Senate District 6. And whether Republicans pick up a second seat depends on the outcome of the close race in Clackamas County. That race, the most expensive state Senate race ever waged in Oregon, currently stands at 50.3 percent to 49.6 percent with many ballots yet to be tallied. So we'll continue to follow uh, the outcome in that race, but rather uh, interesting. Again, by way of review in the governor's race, uh, the fifth uh, congressional, fifth and sixth congressional uh, districts, uh, the gun control measure, um, it was believed too close to call. That has since been uh, been called. Tina Kotek will be the next governor of the state of Oregon. Uh, Lori Chavez de Reamer will serve uh, Congressional District 5. And uh, Andrea Salinas uh, will serve Congressional District 6. The gun control measure 114 passed by 50.9% of the vote to 49.6% opposing. Oregon's local hero fails to make it on uh, to Congress. Oregon's well-known veteran Alec Scarlitos uh, failed at 42 percent for uh, congressional seat or district number four. And Multnomah voters uh, rejected extending voting rights to non-citizens. And we've reviewed some of the others as well. Well, Republicans' long-shot quest to regain control of the Oregon Senate this year is dead based on uh, partial returns as of uh, last night. Um, And again, it's possible that the supermajority has been uh, broken, but the rest not quite clear. President Trump's handpicked and endorsed candidates largely underperformed or outright lost their midterm contests yesterday, deflating the former president's status as a party kingmaker and likely 2024 GOP presidential nominee. Now, I don't think there's any question at this point that he will run again. In fact, he has intimated that he plans to announce next week. But whether or not he will win is another matter. Um, 
Trump, his influence was felt across the board. His hand-picked Senate candidates, political novices who secured their respective nominations largely on the strength of his endorsement, drastically underperformed expectations. House Republican challengers and incumbents who embraced his election um, uh, rejection and gubernatorial candidates who did the same faced similar struggles. Now, in the battleground state of Pennsylvania, the Trump-backed Republican gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano lost by a bruising 13 percentage points to Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro after wholeheartedly embracing the president's um, election uh, rejection. The state's Republican Senate candidate, Dr. Uh, Mehmet Oz, was handpicked by President Trump, who reportedly appreciated his background as a celebrity television doctor with a penchant for uh, hawking dubious medical and um, dietary advice. Uh, the doctor avoided the full-throated endorsement of Trump. Uh, stopped the steel narrative with Mastriano offering up and managed to outperform him, but still lost to Democratic Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor uh, John Fetterman by roughly three percentage points. Now, Fetterman, who struggled following a stroke, suggests that he is fit to serve and by the time he will take office in January, will be fit and able to communicate and hear and comprehend. That will remain to be seen. Fetterman, uh, again, won by roughly three percentage points, while Oz had held rather that Trump um, was someone to be held at arm's uh, arm's length, uh, was unsuccessful. In Georgia, Trump's handpicked candidate, football legend Herschel Walker, is likely uh, headed to a runoff against incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock. Uh, so that um, that head to head is expected in, I believe, December or January. So uh, President uh, Trump did not fare as well as many believed would be the case. And that may, in fact, um, have a major impact on his decision to run or his ability to secure the nomination. Well, by now, you're likely aware that uh, election night was hardly the jubilant uh, celebration for the GOP that many were predicting. As of Wednesday afternoon, control of both the House and the Senate, uh, Senate rather, still hangs in the balance. Uh, We do know that it's not going to be the sweeping victory that was predicted earlier. Control of the Senate will come down to three key races that are still too early to call. Nevada, Georgia, which has been called, by the way, in Arizona. Democrats appear to have taken three other key Senate races in Colorado, New Hampshire and Pennsylvania. Alaska also remained uh, too close to call earlier in the day. But the race pits two Republicans against each other um, in that uh, that case. Republicans have won Senate races in Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Ohio, according to projections. They held 49 Senate seats as of Wednesday afternoon, while Democrats held 48. If Republican Adam Laxalt holds on to his slight lead over incumbent Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, and Blake Masters is unable to overcome incumbent Democrat Mark Kelly's existing lead in Arizona, which seems unlikely, Uh, or likely that he's unable to overcome control of the upper chamber will come down to Georgia, where Republican Herschel Walker is headed for a runoff against incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock. As for the House, key districts in New York and California had not been called as of Wednesday morning. Though Representative Sean Patrick Maloney conceded to New York State Assemblyman Mike Lawler, making him the first Republican in 40 years to defeat a Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee chairman. In the House, Republicans um, had won 210 seats to Democrats' 194 seats as of this afternoon. And though paths remain for Republicans to take control of both chambers of Congress, the party will not see the large majorities it had hoped for. The less-than-stellar uh, showing for Republicans coming uh, comes despite uh, history being on their side. Conventional wisdom says that presidents' uh, parties typically lose seats in the midterm elections. 
Thirteen of the last 19 midterms saw losses in both chambers for the parties in power per Reuters. Of the other six elections, only in 2002 midterms saw gains in both the House and the Senate for the president's party, which was widely seen as a show of support for the Bush administration after 9-11, the terrorist attack in 2001. Under President Donald Trump in 2018, the GOP lost 40 House seats. Under President Barack Obama in 2010, Democrats lost 63 seats. Under President George W. Bush in 2006, the GOP lost 30 seats to give you a little perspective. This year, Republicans had also uh, pinned their hopes on voters' frustration with high um, record high inflation and rising crime. Nearly a third of voters said inflation was their top issue in deciding which House candidate to vote for. According to a CNN exit poll, more than seven in 10 of those voters supported Republican candidates. And abortion seemed to energize voters in several states. Voters in California, Michigan and Vermont elected to enshrine abortion protections in their state constitutions, while voters in Kentucky rejected an effort to revive the state's constitution to make clear there is no protected right for abortion there. Well, much more to uh, to discuss on the subject, but we need to take a break and coming up a conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer, his book, No Reason to Hide. We'll continue our uh, look at the election later in the second hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest asked the question, will you be complicit, complacent, or courageous? I'm speaking to believers. Well, the best-selling author, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, is the author of No Reason to Hide, and he examines the toxic roots behind the alarming symptoms of a culture in spiritual freefall. Identify how you can respond to the battleground issues of today that include identity-driven social justice ideologies that divide rather than unite, cultural attacks on sex and gender, progressive pushes within the church that obscure and uh, desecrate the, the Bible's teachings. Well, the book is a rallying reminder that Christians must have the courage to proclaim Scripture's truth to a culture in desperate need of what only God can provide. I'm so delighted to have uh, Dr. Lutzer with us. He is a pastor emeritus of Moody Church, where he served as the senior pastor for 36 years. He is an award-winning author of many books, including We Will Not Be Silenced, one of my favorites, and the featured speaker on uh, three teaching programs that are heard on more than 1,000 national and international radio outlets. He and his wife, Rebecca, have three grown children, eight great-grandchildren, or I should say grandchildren, in the Chicago area, and we are delighted once again to have Dr. Dr. Lutzer with us here today. Welcome back. So glad to be with you again, Georgine. And yes, thank you for making that correction. It actually is eight grandchildren and not eight great grandchildren. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Uh, we've just finished an election, and some people um, believe that the outcome of that election would uh, result in the end of democracy as we know it. Uh, their life and future is bound by what the outcome might uh, might uh, produce in the days ahead. First of all, can I invite you to comment on this election? And from a Christian perspective, how should we view the outcomes, some of which we might agree with, some of which we are concerned about? Well, first of all, let me say it's very obvious that the predicted red wave did not happen. The other thing I think that's going to happen is I think that the results, because they are so mixed, and in many ways undecided, even at this moment, I think it's going to embolden leftists who really feel that they are on the right side of history. 
You know, when you look at the trends, you notice that abortion was a huge issue. And uh, you think, for example, of here in Illinois, I'm commenting, our schools are sexualizing children Mm -hmm. in ways that are very destructive. And yet at the same time, the party that is in favor of that and pushes that won big. So that's where we are at today in the culture. But this is what I want to emphasize, Georgine, and that is that what this does is it reminds the church that it is not built upon the American Constitution, remarkable document though it is, it is really built upon Christ. And we're going to have to realize that we can no longer look at supports that have been a part of American culture for so many years, we're going to have to go back to the basics and stand with Christ against the culture. In the book you referenced, No Reason to Hide, I make the statement that evil never retreats unless it is um, forced to by a greater power. And that greater power is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must rethink the role of the church We recognize that we are indeed in a collapsing culture. And by the way, we didn't seek this culture war. The culture war has come to us. That's why when I wrote this book, I looked at all the pressure points that the church is facing, whether or not it's from the culture, from cultural Marxism. Two chapters involve racial issues because I believe so deeply that The Bible has the answer to that, which is being ignored. And um, propaganda, you know, the sexualization of our children, all of these kinds of topics are dealt with in the book. There are a number of ways that the Christian community, the Christian, might respond to these issues, to simply retreat, acknowledge that the world is spiraling out of control, and, and wait for Jesus to come to stand firm and confront the culture. And I'm not talking about political campaigns, although there may be some role for that. Um, What do you suggest that Christians ought to consider in view of what we are witnessing? What is our role in this this deconstruction of uh, morality in our country? Well, you know, every Christian is going to have to answer that differently. But like uh, like I like to emphasize... Uh, You know, the culture war is coming to us. I don't think it can be avoided. Our churches can pretend that it's not happening. They can avoid it. But the people who are listening to us right now, whose children go to school, who get up every day, every morning, and go to work in their workforce, in law and in education, no matter where they find themselves, they are up against the culture. Now, specifically, in answer to your question, it is difficult for me to have a Mm one-size-fits-all answer. The businessman will have to think about whether he is uh, forced to compromise and make a decision that indicates his loyalty to Christ. If you're in the realm of law, if you're in the realm of education, For example, there's a school in Missouri, a Christian school that has filed a lawsuit against the federal government because the government is beginning to say that trans students must be given equal rights. Well, what does this mean? 
uh, how would you like it if you send your daughter to a Christian school and she is told that her roommate is was born Bert, but now he goes with Bernice and he needs or she needs, as the case may be, uh, the same kind of rights. So what you find is not just that light is being considered to be darkness and darkness light, but it is being imposed upon us. So a school administrator, the board of a school is going to have to think through where they draw the line. The businessman will, the parent who is sending his child to a school, all of us in our own sphere have to think through what our response to the collapsing culture really is. And that's the challenge for each of us to be led by the Spirit, to be in the Word, to determine, God, what are you calling me to do in response to the specific challenges that I'm facing? I think, please go ahead. Exactly. And what we must do is to seek the face of the Lord and recognize that it is indeed a spiritual battle. But I wrote the book that you're referencing, and thank you so much for having me on this evening. I wrote the book to help Christians answer questions like this. What do parents say if a child comes to them and says, I think I'm trans? How do we handle that? How do we handle the issue of propaganda or even the issue of race where critical race theory keeps tearing apart what Jesus died to bring together? These are questions that the church can no longer ignore. I know for many, um, many parents, the temptation is to um, shrink back when there's intimidation and there's a cost associated with standing on truth. What do you, what do you say to those who are loath to pay the cost um, that may lose them their business or may mean that they can no longer serve as an educator uh, they may have to withdraw a student from uh, an education system uh, that would force a, a worldview uh, and practice on students that conflict with a biblical worldview. Well, you know, I want to just punt the ball to what happened in Germany. I was in East Germany, which was under communist rule for many, many years. A pastor there told me that 15% only of the German Christians stood up to communism. The communists said, if you want a job, if you want your kids to go to school, you have to stop going to church, you have to become a member of the party. Most, 85%, submitted. 15 didn't. 15%. Now, you know, these families struggle terribly But if you back off, first of all, they did see God's faithfulness in the midst of their obedience, which is something we have to learn. But if you back off and ask yourself the question, in a hundred years, what family made the wisest decision? I think we'd all agree it's the 15%. I mentioned that in answer to your question. The time is coming when, of course, jobs are at stake, opportunities are at stake, But you know what the culture responds to? It really does, or believers respond to one believer being willing to roll up the flag to the top of the pole, uh, a Christian flag, and then suddenly you discover there are all these other people who are joining because they needed somebody to be the hero to do it first. So I'd encourage people listening and ask 
Are you willing to do what you need to do to be faithful to Christ? Because when you do, you might be surprised at the number of people who come and stand with you. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer. His latest book, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture, in which he does provide tools to think through and then navigate through a culture that is collapsing but is also um, producing pressure that some of us are not prepared for. We want to honor Christ, and how do we do that? This is a great book to help us uh, to understand. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, he says that politics can't be separated from morality, and morality cannot be separated from Christianity. He's the author of the best-selling We Will Not Be Silenced, and As uh, charged issues like abortion rights and LGBTQ advocacy divide America, the church must choose between counter-biblical complacency and cultural condemnation. Will we interpret Scripture through the lens of culture, or will we critique the culture through the lens of Scripture? Dr. Lutzer hopes that uh, to equip Christians to choose the latter. His latest book, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. We begin by answering the question, um, whom you will serve uh, in the, the challenging culture that we find ourselves in. This is a very serious que- question. I think a lot of us would just say, well, of course, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. But answering that question um, that, as you point out in the uh, um, first chapter, in which you reference Joshua 24, 14 through 15, choosing who we're going to serve um, and standing firm there is the beginning of dealing with and confronting the the issues that challenge our culture today. Yeah, you know, for example, here in Chicago, a school teacher in the public school told me he was told that if he doesn't, it is not enough that he simply tolerates same-sex marriage. He was told if you don't celebrate it, you could lose your job. All right, now there's a line in the sand, You know, a a follower of Jesus cannot celebrate what God has condemned. Now, let's suppose he loses his job. Is the rest of the church going to come around and say, you know, we're going to help you during this period of transition. You have a wife and children that you need to take care of. We're going to be here for you. I think that the collapsing culture is even going to have to make us rethink what the church is all about. You know, my wife and I have been to communist countries uh, such as and so forth. We were actually in China many, many, many years ago. One of the things that you find there is Christians really do hang together. They support one another. They get things for one another because they know that survival is at stake. We've not had to do that in America, but we may have to begin to do that, and I think we do, because we can no longer depend upon the supports that we always thought would be ours. Take, for example, just the simple issue of freedom of religion. It is under attack in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And I point this out in a chapter that I have in the book on uh, the topic of propaganda. It's um, really uh, compromised, that is to say, freedom of religion is compromised because of the misuse of words. For example, you have a good word, equality. You have a good word, justice, which is found frequently in the Bible. And God says, what does the Lord your God require but to do justice? But today, it's reinterpreted. So we have 
such things as economic justice, which is, of course, socialism. You have marriage justice, which is same-sex marriage. You have um, environmental justice. So what we've done is we've created a culture where freedom now is interpreted in ways that actually compromise freedom of religion. The same could be said for the word equality, a very good word, but today we attach it to whatever agenda the culture wants to attend uh, to, to. Now, I hope I'm being clear here by saying what's happening is this. We need to make choices. We need to think through the issues. We need to be able to answer our children when they come home and say that I think I'm trans. We need to equip the church for the collapsing culture. You have a chapter in which you begin with the question, will we be deceived by the language used by the propagandist? You gave some examples just then in which you attach words that we would all embrace to um, objects that we cannot embrace. And you write that truth is never welcome in a pagan world. And I think that's something that we wrestle with. We assume that if we can make the case that um, using truth, that it will be embraced. But that's that's not the case. How do we navigate in a uh, in a culture in which truth is whatever we make it out to be? It's it's relative to my position on a particular issue at a given time. First of all, let me say that the purpose of propaganda is to so shape people's view of reality that uh, even when confronted with a mountain of contrary evidence, they will not change their minds. And in that chapter, I show how language is pressed into service to bring that about. But in answer to your question, I want to, first of all, quote the words of Booker T. Washington, real wisdom. He said, evil doesn't become good and wrong doesn't become right just because the majority believe it to be so. So what we have to do is to help this culture to understand that you cannot have my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. We cannot do that. We cannot exist because all of our, quote, truths collapse and they contradict each other. What we must be willing to do is to step back and say, look, this culture is irrational. Everybody knows, for example, that uh, men can't have babies, too. In fact, George Orwell, in his book, talked about how somebody was taken, Winston was taken into a room and taught that two plus two is equal to five, sometimes it's equal to three. The purpose is to get him used to living with lies. So the best that we can do, George Ann, is to expose the lies and say, we will not live by lies. We're going to expose them. And we're going to help people to see that there is truth that exists outside of us. And there is actually somebody who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it's important for us to be able to confront these issues, to think them through, and to respond accordingly.
There's so much in your book that we don't have time to cover, but I would highly recommend it. H.B. Uh, Charles Jr. said that there are few voices in our day that are as clear and courageous as Lutzer's, and I would wholeheartedly agree. The book is titled No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. If you want to be equipped, if you want to refine your commitment and your resolve to honor Christ and to stand on truth, this is an excellent volume to help you do just that in the uh, shifting sands of our culture. Culture. Dr. Lutzer, thank you so much for your work and for talking with us today. Thank you so much. God bless. And of course, the book is available on Amazon. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments after news and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in this hour, we'll talk with Nicole Hunt. She is an attorney and a life issues analyst with focus on the family. We'll talk about the devastating losses for pro-lifers across the country on Election Day. And some final thoughts. Local pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church sent me a list of uh, things to consider if we're just too into politics to the exclusion of what honors God. We'll share what he's written later in the program as well. Well, Republicans underperformed in crucial Senate and House races and Democrats were able to hold off an anticipated red wave. It was more like a red swell, maybe, in the midterm elections. Several GOP candidates endorsed by the president, former President Donald Trump, did not perform well, including Republican Senate candidate Dr. Mehmet Oz, who lost to Pennsylvania's Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. However, a handful of congressional seats are still too close to call as control over the House and the Senate hangs in the balance. Governor DeSantis and Senator Marco Rubio, they carry the state of Florida by historical margins. DeSantis' victory has led many pundits and insiders to speculate he may challenge Trump for the GOP presidential nomination in 2024. In fact, when he was giving his acceptance speech, you could hear uh, some in the the uh, crowd uh, saying two more years. In other words, he would run in 2024 for the White House. Well, the results also favor President Biden to remain the Democratic presidential nominee while his party continues to advocate for pro-abortion issues at the ballot box. For Georgia, Democratic incumbent Senator Raphael Warnick and Republican challenger Herschel Walker will likely head to a runoff election next month. That may decide which party controls the Senate. Uh, some of the things to consider from the uh, midterm elections, President Trump had a bad night. His endorsement was considered essential for Republican contenders in GOP Senate and House primaries across the country. However, in the uh, midterms yesterday, many of those candidates handpicked by the former president lost their races. I've mentioned uh, several of them already. Regardless, the president is expected to announce his third presidential bid later this month. On the eve of the midterm elections, the president told a crowd of thousands at an Ohio rally that he would make a big announcement Tuesday, November 15th at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida. Interestingly, President Biden said that he was planning to do what he could to prevent um, former President Trump from Uh, occupying the Oval Office ever again. Now, that's an interesting statement made by a sitting president about a former president uh, that he uh, ran against and opposes. So we'll see if we can get some clarification on what the current president actually meant. Another observation, Democrats are emboldened for 2024. There was a lot of speculation about a red wave and that Democrats didn't fully comprehend the issues of 
great importance to the American people. Well, that proved not to be so much the case. Entering the midterm elections, Biden's declining approval numbers with rising inflation had many pundits questioning whether Democrats would uh, nominate the 46th president for the 2024 presidential race. Some are speculating that California Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom would be a formidable challenger to Biden. However, many of those notions were dismissed on Tuesday night after Democrats flipped Pennsylvania blue. Not only is Pennsylvania Biden's native state, but the president actively campaigned in the race with Fetterman, including at a rally alongside former President Obama a week before the election. There were a number of pro-life losses. We'll talk more about this later in the program. But following the Supreme Court overturn of Roe versus Wade this summer, ballot measures protecting access to abortion, one in Michigan, California, Vermont, Montana and Kentucky. Many of the states like Michigan and California passed abortion initiatives by double digits. Uh, Not much of a surprise. We're talking about California and Michigan, but even in Republican-dominated states like Kentucky and Montana, voters struck down by overwhelming numbers pro-life initiatives. Uh, Florida went deep red. In Florida, Republicans had landslide victories in the gubernatorial and Senate races with DeSantis and Rubio. Um, uh, DeSantis flipped the longtime Democratic stronghold of Miami-Dade County for the first time in two decades. Previously, DeSantis lost the county to former Democratic challenger Andrew Gilliam uh, by more than 20 points. And Rubio also fell short of a victory in Miami-Dade six years ago by 11 points. Well, that shifted this time around. Also, Georgia is headed for a runoff. The state uh, of Georgia could be uh, the deciding race that determines if Republicans or Democrats hold the majority in the Senate. As of Wednesday, neither incumbent Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock or The Republican outsider Herschel Walker have a clear majority to avoid a runoff. All eyes are poised on Georgia. Well, Georgia voters cast just shy of four million ballots during this year's election. It's a record high number for a midterm election in the state, despite allegations by prominent Democrats by uh, that Republicans were intentionally trying to suppress minority votes. According to Georgia's secretary of state data, three million nine hundred and fifty seven thousand five hundred ninety eight voters cast ballots in 2022. The midterm election up slightly from previous years, a difference of some seven thousand six hundred ninety three ballots. The only Georgia elections that have had higher raw turnout were the 2016 and 2020 general election and the 2021 U.S. Senate runoffs, according to a review of the state data. Georgians cast about 4.2 million ballots in 2016 when Donald Trump faced Hillary Clinton in the presidential race. There were just over 5 million ballots cast in the 2020 general, which included the presidential race between Trump and Joe Biden, as well as uh, two high-profile U.S. Senate race, uh, races, rather, and about 4.5 million voters cast ballots in the 2021 runoffs, which gave Democrats control of the Senate. Well, President Biden on Wednesday admitted that he plans to do nothing different in the uh, second half of his first term to restore Americans' confidence in the direction of their country, despite the possibility that Republicans reclaim a majority in the House after an otherwise lackluster midterm performance. Speaking to reporters the day after the midterm elections, the president was asked what he might do differently to address voters' concerns about the economy and the widespread sentiment that the country is generally moving in the wrong direction. And the president replied... Nothing. I'm not going to change anything in any fundamental way. Well, while Republicans uh, didn't fare as well as expected on Tuesday night's election, exit polls show that inflation, the cost of living and crime, which have all worsened under Democratic leadership, weigh heavily on voters. 
Well, let's see. In a, a Keystone State flip, John Fetterman beats Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Republican J.D. Vance tops Democrat-Republican Tim Ryan in a contentious Ohio state race. Kevin McCarthy declared the GOP will take back the House and push Nancy Pelosi out as Speaker. That's pretty much a done deal. The much-touted red wave did not happen. Uh, Peach pick, Georgia GOP Governor Brian Kemp defeated Stacey Abrams. Democrat Governor Gretchen Whitmer prevailed over former TV host Tudor Dixon in a hard-fought race. And... um, Governor Kathy Hochul held on to power in New York, overpowering GOP challenger Representative Lee Zeldin. In New Hampshire, Senator Maggie Hassan fended off GOP candidate Don Bulldock, uh, retaining her seat for Democrats. It's been quite an election and a, quite a post-election day. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. And later in this hour, Nicole Hunt. The uh, attorney and life issues analyst for Focus on the Family on the devastating loss for pro-lifers in this election. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with Nicole Hunt, an attorney and life issues analyst for Focus on the Family. We'll talk about abortion on the uh, ballot in some states across the country. Well, serious obstacles frustrated voters in Arizona and Pennsylvania. This is unacceptable. Katie Pavlich says that 20 percent of voting machines in the county are down, according to Maricopa County elections officials. Poll workers at the key voting locations in Arizona's Maricopa County announced in the morning that voting machines at a polling station in Anthem were not working. A significant number of ballots were being misread, but election officials claim that individuals are still able to cast their ballots properly and were counted Uh, before the election day ended. The Citizen Free Press points out that Maricopa meltdown, the machines aren't working. No, nothing is working. Post Millennial weighed in saying the county recorder, Stephen Richter, apologized for the voter tabulation problems in his county. Of course, they had problems last time around, apparently unresolved. Well, new data reveals that inflation is causing the biggest pay cut for Americans in 25 years. Americans who received higher paychecks in 2022 than the year before are still seeing their dollars buy less due to rising inflation, making the increase um, seem more like a pay cut. More than half, 53 percent of workers, saw wage growth this year that was less than the rate of inflation, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. As a result, these workers saw a median decline in inflation-adjusted wage growth of 8.6 percent in the second quarter of 22, uh, compared to the same time last year. The Consumer Price Index, a measure of inflation, increased by 8.2 percent year-over-year in September. And RNC Research says... Um, of a CBS exit poll, 46% of families say their finances are worse than two years ago. Well, Vermont has become the first state to officially enshrine abortion. Vermonters on Tuesday voted overwhelmingly in favor of a ballot measure, a proposal that will enshrine a right to abortion in the state constitution. While 53% of votes counted, 76% of Vermonters had voted in favor of the proposal, while 24% against it. In accordance with the vote, an additional article will be added to Vermont's constitution, guaranteeing the right to abortion, contraception, and sterilization. While Vermont is the first to explicitly enshrine abortion rights through an amendment, in 10 states, high courts have ruled that the state constitution protects abortion rights independently from the U.S. Constitution. Elon Musk sold nearly $4 billion more Tesla stock. Uh, Musk sold about $4 billion in the uh, 
much-coveted stock over several days after completing the $44 billion purchase of Twitter. Mr. Musk sold 19.5 million shares in Tesla from the 4th to the 8th of this month, according to regulatory disclosures made public on Tuesday. Musk sold about $22 billion worth of the shares in 21, a year when the stock jumped over 50%. This year, he sold over $8 billion worth of Tesla stock in April and another roughly $7 billion worth in August. Xi Jinping states that China is preparing for war because the country's security is unstable. China will focus on preparing for war with the country's security increasingly unstable and uncertain, Xi says. Uh, Beijing will now comprehensively strengthen its military training in preparation for any war, Xi said today. His warning comes after Xi's last technology and defense of China interests abroad, raising the likelihood of further conflict. Gordon Chang of Heritage Foundation on Twitter writes that Xi Jinping, who sort of has his finger on the button, is sounding crazy. His comments today about war and instability tell us either something is wrong in the uh, Communist Chinese Party circles or he's losing it, end quote. Hmm. Homeowners have lost $1.5 trillion in equity in six months. Just last year, the housing market was a seller's dream as prices climbed to dizzying heights and homes sold like hotcakes. But today, that hot market has cooled considerably. According to a recent report from mortgage software and analytics company Black Knight, American homeowners have lost a whopping $1.5 trillion in equity since May. Black Knight Data and Analytics President Ben Grabosk He observed in the span of just three months, U.S. mortgage holders saw a total of $1.3 trillion in newly acquired equity evaporate. He further noted that is by far the largest quarterly decline on record by dollar value and the largest since 2009 on a percentage basis. The average homeowner has lost $30,000 in equity since May. However, to put that in perspective, the average homeowner homeowner rather, has gained over $92,000 in equity since prior to the pandemic. Unfortunately, the number of homeowners who purchased their homes within the last two years and are now underwater on their mortgage has risen to 500000 representing roughly 3.6% of all mortgages. Despite the drop in home equity, home prices have yet to fall nearly as significantly. Well, Meta has laid off uh, over 11,000 employees The big tech firm Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, laid off 11,000 employees this week. CEO and founder Mark Zuckerberg explained in a letter to employees, I want to take accountability for these decisions and for how we got here. I know this is tough for everyone, and I'm especially sorry to those impacted. The 11,000 laid off employees account for approximately 13 percent of Meta's workforce. The significant layoffs follow Meta's profit falling by 50 percent last quarter. The company valued at over one trillion dollars last year has seen its stocks value plummet by 70 percent from that high. Zuckerberg, for his part, is blaming blaming himself, saying that he attempted to grow the company too quickly and too big during the pandemic when online commerce was spiking. Unfortunately, this didn't play out the way I expected. I got this wrong and I take responsibility for that, end quote. Well, Zuckerberg has been working to stem the bleeding for months as he first began cutting back on company perks, then enacted a hiring freeze in September, and now he's downsizing the staff. But Meta is far from the only tech company to be negatively impacted by economic headwinds. Control of the U.S. Senate will likely come down to the Georgia runoff in a pricey replay of early 2021. 
Left-wing states voted for a right to abortion and a midterm defeat for pro-lifers. Michigan adopted controversial new voting rules that will jeopardize election security. And Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez led a group of far-left lawmakers adding new members. Ron DeSantis, on his historic blowout victory, says Florida is where woke goes to die. Alabama, Tennessee, Vermont remove slavery loopholes from their constitutions. Louisiana does not. Oregon did the same. Dems blow nearly $200 million on perennial political losers, Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams. And House Republicans plan to push nuclear power and natural gas at the COP27 conference. Well, on this day in history, 1620, the passengers and crew of the Mayflower cite Cape Cod. 1938, Nazis loot and burn synagogues as well as Jewish-owned stores and houses in Germany and Austria and a program of deliberate persecution that became known as Kristallnacht. 1961, U.S. Air Force Major Robert White becomes the first pilot to to fly an X-15 rocket plane at six times the speed of sound. 1965, the Great Northeast Blackout begins as a series of power failures lasting up to 13 and a half hours leave 30 million people in seven states and part of Canada without electricity. 1967, a Saturn V rocket carrying an unnamed Um, An unmanned Apollo spacecraft blasts off from Cape Kennedy on a successful test flight. 1976, the U.N. General Assembly approves resolutions condemning apartheid in South Africa, including one characterizing the white-ruled government as illegitimate. 1989, communist East Germany threw open its borders, allowing citizens to travel freely to the West. Joyous Germans danced atop the Berlin Wall. I remember quite clearly those images. 2000, George W. Bush's lead over Al Gore in All or Nothing, Florida, slipped beneath 300 votes in a suspense-filled recount as uh, Democrats challenged the presidential election in the courts, claiming an injustice unparalleled in our history. So we've had a series of events that are unparalleled in our history that are actually more common than we might imagine. 2007, President uh, General Pervez Musharraf of Pakistan uh, he uh, places opposition leader Benazir Bhutto under house arrest for a day and rounds up thousands of her uh, supporters to block a mass rally against his emerging rule. And in 2007, during 17, rather, during a visit to Beijing, President Trump criticizes what he called a very one sided and unfair trade relationship between the U.S. and China, but says he doesn't blame China for having taken advantage of the United States. We've allowed them to let it happen. Well, coming up, a conversation with Nicole Hunt, an attorney and life issues analyst for Focus on the Family. We'll talk about some of the devastating losses for pro-lifers on Election Day. And some final thoughts. Uh, Pastor Greg Allen suggests that politics have become too important to me if, and we'll fill in the blank. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, following the overturn of Roe versus Wade, many pro-lifers were very optimistic about the future with regard to abortion in this, you, these United States. The states were given the opportunity to decide for themselves how the practice was going to either continue or be curtailed dramatically or prevented altogether. We're here to talk to us about this election night outcome with regard to the practice of abortion is Nicole Hunt. Dr. Hunt uh, is a life issues analyst with Focus on the Family, and she joins us to talk about the devastating losses um, on pro-life issues 
uh, this election day. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Do you think we were overly optimistic when Roe versus Wade was overturned, imagining that that was uh, really sufficient to give the people an opportunity to overturn Roe versus Wade in their respective states? Or do you think we were um, rightfully skeptical that this was going to be something that would happen overnight? I do think that there was some overt optimism that uh, that really resulted in a rush for a lot of abortion um, restrictions to be put in place. And, and you know, results from a study released by um, a, a, an abortion organization actually located here in Denver said that in the two months following the uh, row reversal, there was actually a net decline of 10,000 abortions in America. And so I think that these restrictions have actually demonstrated that, that they are saving lives. But I think what we underestimated was just how much slower it is to change culture on these opinions. You know, Roe v. Wade was decided 49 years ago, and a whole generation has grown up having casual sex and casual abortion. And to change the conversation, to redirect it and remind everyone that there really is a moral weightiness to these decisions and that we need to change our perspective on abortion, not just being a casual solution to a casual problem, but being a truly moral, morally um, depraved decision and encouraging people to choose life, that is a much slower battle to fight. And I think maybe what we've, what we've seen in the election night results is that people's hearts and minds aren't quite there yet, even though the pro-life movement wants there to be these changes Right. In, in constitutions and in statutory law, uh, people's hearts and minds aren't quite there yet. Yeah. I think for many who have been involved in the pro-life movement for many years, I being among them, uh, there's a, a degree of exhaustion. We have uh, worked hard for this day to come. Roe versus Wade was overturned and it would have been glorious for uh, the American people to in the states where they had the opportunity to simply say enough is enough. But the work is far from from being over. Let's talk a little bit about. Uh, some of the initiatives that were on ballots, the constitutional uh, amendments and mm-hmm. so on in Michigan, California, Vermont. What happened with regard to pro-life um, optimism and issues on Election Day? Right. So in Michigan, Vermont and California, voters were be- were given an opportunity to enshrine abortion in their state constitution. And this is the this is the trajectory that the abortion lobby is taking these discussions. Basically what they're doing is they're creating many rows in each of the state constitutions. They're creating a right to an abortion in the state constitution. So in those three states, Michigan, Vermont, and California, voters showed up and they voted to enshrine abortion in state constitutions. The net effect of this is is really disastrous for pro-life laws in these states, because what will happen is for many of these states who already have pro-life laws on the books, those pro-life laws may very well be invalidated because a court will read that they are in conflict with the state constitution. And then secondly, it will be very difficult moving forward to pass any pro-life laws, because if they are in direct conflict with a right that's enshrined in the state constitution, it's very likely that the state courts will, um, will, will rule those statutes to be unconstitutional. So it really is devastating. What we saw in those three states um, in particular was a significant amount of pro-abortion lobbying money being spent. In Michigan alone, 
the abortion lobby groups spent about $46 million to pass their proposal. And that was in contrast to the pro-life groups that had raised $17 million. So you can see it's a stark contrast. But the truth is, is the, the abortion lobby has everything to lose, and they are in it to win it. They, they know they have to. They're taking it very seriously because they have to. Their business model depends on selling abortions to Americans. So they put their money where their mouth is, and it, it turned out for them. They were able to turn out voters, and they were able to pass this very tragic, um, very, very tragic and, and painful policy that's not only going to hurt women, it's going to hurt children and it's going to hurt families because it's going to allow legalized abortions for minors without parental consent, without parental notification. And, and these are, this, is, this is backwards. This is multiple steps backwards for the pro-life movement. Mm. Well, let's talk about what happened, uh, pro-life measures that failed in Kentucky and Montana. This was something of a surprise. Absolutely. So traditionally, looking at Kentucky and looking at Montana, these are more traditionally known to be pro-life states. Kentucky still have pro-life measures that are the law. But the question was, the question brought to the voters was um, whether the whether abortion would or whether the the preborn would be protected under the state constitution. Now, unfortunately, um, again, the abortion lobby was very active in Kentucky. They were actively trying to turn out voters who felt threatened by this constitutional um, provision, even though state law already protects life in that state. So they had a majority of voters, 52 percent showed up and said that they did not support protecting life in the state constitution. And that was in contrast to the 47 percent of voters that wanted to support and that did support the amendment. Now, Montana is a different story and very interesting because in that case, the question was put to the voters whether infants who are born alive during an abortion should receive medical care. And shockingly, a majority of Montana voters, 52%, said no, that baby should not receive medical care. Mm, I guess it shouldn't be altogether surprising given that we've lived in an abortion culture for such a long period of time. But it is very disappointing um, and uh, unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, across the board, it seems that abortion uh, was a a winning issue for those who supported abortion. Uh, I think it was underestimated in many of the projections that we heard from uh, pundits suggesting that uh, it really wasn't resonating with voters, that there were other issues that were more predominant. Your thoughts in general and uh, included in that your thoughts on the president who would like to enshrine Roe versus Wade in federal law. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that abortion was on the minds of a lot of people. I think for um, for a lot of Americans, uh, the the grocery bill and the decline in our 401ks um, all were top of mind as well. But I think I do think that having abortion policies on the ballot turned voters out to vote against them in ways that perhaps they might not have showed up otherwise. Um, I think this is something that the uh, abortion lobby is going to tap into in the future. And I have no doubt, given the success that they've had in in shooting down um, these type of, of abortion ballot initiatives, 
and supporting abortion and state constitutions, that this is going to continue to be a tactic we're going to see used by the left to try to promote abortion. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to bring it in all of the 13 states that currently restrict abortion. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to take that specifically to the voters and have the voters vote on whether or not they want abortion to be enshrined in their state constitutions. That's something that we should be looking for and expecting and getting ready to fight against. Uh, With regard to the president's uh, desire to codify Roe, I mean, I think we need to take this seriously. My my one hope is that we're holding on to the House, and uh, and, and if pro-life candidates hold on to the House, then uh, that's going to be a protection against the ability of the federal government to codify Roe at the federal level. Um, It's important that, that, you know, Christians who are pro-life uh, get out and they vote their values. We need to keep in mind that abortion policy can be legislated federally and at the state level. And so we need to vote for lawmakers who will protect life and who will protect the preborn. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's a brave new world and there's much that we can do to support life and to help to change the hearts and minds of our fellow countrymen. Nicole Hunt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Again, uh, Dr. Nicole Hunt is uh, the Life Issues Analyst for Focus on the Family, uh, talking about some of the initiatives that were on the ballot in um, various states on abortion. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. When we do, we'll talk about politics and how we can tell if they've become just a little too important to us in light of our Christian faith and our assignment as ambassadors for Christ. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I wanted to end with something Pastor Greg Allen sent me from Bethany Bible Church. Uh, He's written it um, some time ago, but it applies every time we have a political season coming around. In the email he wrote to me, he wrote that I believe that Christians must be involved in every meaningful area of life in this world, but how they do so needs to be radically different from everyone else. As followers of Jesus, we are to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus in the way we speak our minds and become involved in the things that touch all of us, including politics. Uh, And so he's written, I know politics has become too important to me. When getting the right person into office is more of a priority to me than being the right person before God. When an undesirable political decision, policy, or outcome is allowed to rob me of my joy and peace in Christ. And he accompanies each one of these uh, statements with scripture. The first, when getting the right person into office is more of a priority to me than being right uh, before God. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. Psalm 33, 16 and 18 or through 18. And the other, when an undesirable political decision, policy or outcome is allowed to rob me of my joy and peace, I know politics has become too important to me. Be anxious for nothing. There's no asterisk with an exception. But it goes on to say, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6. I know politics has become too important to me when I refuse to conform to God's expressed will if it means that I would have to change some of my cherished political views. 
Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect the will of God. I know that um, politics has become too important to me when I'm willing to speak evil of someone else who is made in the image of God if he or she disagrees with my political viewpoint. And then he makes reference to the scripture, James 3, 8 through 10. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the, in the uh, image of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Again, James 3, 8 through 10. When I choose to ignore God's revealed truth, if that truth is denied or opposed by my party's political platform, I might be just a little too uh, wound up in politics. Acts four nineteen through 20. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Acts four nineteen through 20. When I find myself too closely aligned with ungodly people on the basis of shared political objectives, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. When political concerns take up the time, energy, and resources that rightfully belong only to God— Remembering Matthew twenty two twenty one, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I know politics has become too important to me when I depend more on political and governmental programs to meet my needs than I do on God's sovereign provision. Philippians four nineteen, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I know I'm, well, too wound up in politics when my opposition to any government policy causes me to harden my heart toward my neighbor's real need. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his, his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? First John three seventeen. And when I believe that Jesus' command to love my neighbor is better accomplished by a social program than in me, well, I might... Uh, I have a precarious relationship with politics. I know politics has become too important to me. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. When I care more about protecting a perishable earthly treasure than I care about building up my treasure in heaven, well, politics may be just a little too important to me. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew six nineteen through 21. 
I, um, I know politics has become too important to me when after I'm finished participating in an argument with uh, about politics, I feel, well, rather sullied or soiled, if you will. Ephesians four twenty nine through 30. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When I make this earthly kingdom so much of a priority that I give second place to living for the kingdom of God, which will endure forever. But Matthew six thirty three reminds us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And when I find that I have more passion for temporal social uh, policies than I do with eternal souls, well, maybe I'm um, politics has become too important to me. Matthew sixteen twenty six. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And finally, I know politics has become too important to me when in an irreverent spirit before God, I begin to speak evil of the leaders he has placed over me. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of his people or your people. Exodus twenty two twenty eight. Seeking balance, understanding, marching orders from uh, the one who has assigned us as ambassadors is our role now. In light of decisions you may agree with or oppose, in view of people that you may embrace or reject in terms of their public policy, we remain the same ambassadors and representatives of Christ. And we do well to remember that in this very contentious season in a very divided country. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow we'll talk with Dr. Craig Evans, editor of a handbook on the Jewish roots of the Gospels. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.